Well, first of all, I want to uh, thank Steve Snyder for pinch hitting last week at the last minute. Steve, thank you, brother, for your word last week. You did a great job, um, especially for having you know less than 24 hours notice. Uh, just thank you for stepping in and and uh, preaching for us last week. Um, Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11 is what we're going to look at today. And this is a, a really special uh, passage of scripture for me. I mentioned when we began Philippians that there was a, a day back in college where um, I was challenged uh, by someone to go and to take a, a day away to just to just study scripture. And I chose the book of Philippians and in particular uh, took this passage, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, to really spend most of my day in. And it really became a scripture passage that uh, that shaped me and gave me a vision for what it means to to follow Jesus and what it means to live in community with other people. Um, I have certainly not arrived, as Paul says later in Philippians, not that I have already obtained all this, but I press on toward the goal to win the prize that God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I believe that Philippians 2, 1 through 11 is one of the the passages where God has given me a clear vision of what it means to be a Christ follower and what it means to be a pastor and a friend and a husband and a father. And um, so it's a special it's a special passage for me, and I hope to um, communicate to you uh, this beautiful calling of, of humility that Jesus gives for us as an example. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for, uh, for, for Jesus and for his example to us. Uh, we thank you for the way that uh, the love of the Father was reflected through him in his life, through his death, through his resurrection. And God, I pray that we would know him today. Amen. So as we've been walking through the book of Philippians, we are focusing on this theme of maturity, that the book of Philippians is a letter that's a call to maturity. And we've defined maturity as knowing Christ and becoming like Christ. That's what maturity is, knowing Christ and becoming like Christ. And I want to be, be clear here at the beginning just to remind you about this idea of maturity, that it doesn't have anything to do with talent or education or high IQ, or wealth, or influence, or certain personality traits. I've met a lot of really talented and educated, immature people. Have you? And I've met a lot of very simple, salts-of-the-earth, mature people. Maybe more the latter than the former. Also, being older is no guarantee of maturity. I've met a lot of immature old people. And I know some young people, we know some young people at Broadway, don't we? Who are mature. Who know Christ. And whose lives look like Christ. Age and experience are definitely connected to maturity. I hope the 17 and 18 year olds that are mature, that we know and that we get to see and that they are a witness to us. I hope they're more mature 10 years from now than they are today. 
I hope that they're more mature 20 or 30 years from now than they are today. But age and experience uh, are not a guarantee of maturity. Time is an important part of the process of growing up into maturity. We need time to grow. And as we grow older, if we allow the Holy Spirit and the experiences that we have in our life to teach us and to change us and to mold us, then we will become more mature. But just because someone is older doesn't mean that they are mature in the way that we are talking about here, knowing Christ and becoming like Christ. In our scripture that we're looking at today in Philippians chapter 2, we see that maturity is not demonstrated through talent or education or high IQ or leadership or wealth or even old age. Maturity is demonstrated most clearly in one very simple way. Humility. Humility. In humility toward other people, in being willing to serve others around you, by being willing to put the interests of others before your own. Humility. It's a very simple idea, but it's not easy, is it? Being humble is not easy. It's an easy idea to get your mind around, but it really takes a whole life to really get rid of all of this inner selfishness and to be able to give up our own interests for the sake of others. Humility. This is the, quali- this is the quality of Christ-likeness that is expressed in Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes to the Philippian church, and as we've heard over the last few weeks, he has a lot of great things to say about them. They've been incredible partners in ministry to him. They've responded to the gospel. Unlike most of the letters that Paul writes to churches, he has very little correction for them. But he does know, and he's heard rumors, that in the church there are some some inner conflicts taking place. There are some disagreements among friends. There are close relationships in the church that are being being threatened. And part of his letter in Philippians is for the purpose of addressing this conflict between friends and to tell them that humility is the key to resolving these problems among you. Paul says, in humility, consider others better than yourself. I want to sum up humility, define humility in this way. It is the attitude that says, there is no one that is beneath me. Humility is the attitude that says, there is no one that is beneath me. No one that I get to look down on for any reason. There is no one that is beneath me. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. 
Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, that is, to be exploited or take advantage of. But he took on the very, took, made himself nothing and took on the very nature of a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because he did all of that, God exalted him to the highest place. And he gave him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Humility. There's a, a group of, of writings in the history of the church from the desert fathers and mothers. These were uh, men and women who lived in the first four or five hundred years of the church's life, and many of them saw how very early on the church was becoming corrupt, was seeking after power, and was losing the vision of the gospel. And many of them would go out into the desert and they would, they would pray. They devoted their lives to prayer. And there would be people who would come out and who would pray with them or, or to seek wisdom or guidance from them. And there's a story about one of these desert fathers that I think demonstrates an important part of humility. There was a brother who was out in the desert, and he was praying, and he was deep in prayer, and the devil visited him disguised as an angel. And the devil said to him, I am the angel Michael, and I have been sent to you. And the brother responded, make sure that you were not sent to someone else, because I'm not worthy to see an angel. And immediately, the devil left him because he saw the man's humility. The point of this story is that if your life is marked by humility, you will live quite free from the power of the devil. The devil's greatest weapon against you in your life is not his own power. It's not his own cleverness or his own wiliness. The devil's greatest weapon against you is your pride. And when you are humble, truly humble, when you lack pride, the devil has very little to work with, with you. In Philippians chapter 2, we see how very little the devil had to work with with Jesus. There was no pride in him. And we see that in the temptation stories, how the devil came appealing so often to Jesus' pride. And time and time again, Jesus, because he was humble, resisted. And so Paul here is calling the church in Philippi to be people who are humble so that the devil will have a, not have a place in their community. Will not bring about his division that he wants to bring among the community. Verses 1 through 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. 
Steve mentioned this last week, and I just want to just reiterate it here. Humility begins by experiencing the work of Christ in your life. By knowing the work of Christ in your life. Humility is not formed in our life by grasping after it or trying harder. Humility is formed in your soul, formed in your heart, by experiencing and knowing the work of Jesus. By knowing yourself as a person in desperate need of his salvation and his mercy and his forgiveness and his rescue and knowing and receiving all of those things that you need from him. That's where humility begins. Last week, Steve spoke about the the if-then logic of computer programming. I have no idea about any of that kind of thing. But I do see the if-then here in Philippians chapter 2. If you know who Jesus is, if you know the rescue that you have experienced through his work, then we are called to extend that same sort of attitude toward people around us. If I have experienced Jesus' grace and kindness and humility toward me, then I am called to pass that on to my brothers and sisters around me. But humility begins with this first step. It's rooted in our knowledge and our understanding of what God has done for us in Jesus. And so as we enter into our relationships with other people, we enter into those relationships from that place. I have been loved much, and so I can love much. I have been forgiven much, so I can forgive others. Jesus, we often know, is the mediator between us and God. But do you know that he's also the mediator between me and you? That that our relationship is only possible because of the work that he has done. He is the mediator between me and you. He is the mediator between you and your spouse, between you and your children, between you and your friends. He is the one who breaks down all of the walls of hostility that are between us. Our unity together as God's people has been one in Jesus. Verses 3 and 4. Paul then begins to talk about, because of this work that God has done in you and the the encouragement that you have from being united in Christ, this is the attitude that we should have toward one another. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the attitude of humility. This is, there is no one beneath me. Just real quick, though, I want to say uh, something that's very important here. Paul does not tell you here that your interests don't matter at all. There are some of you have, who have a certain personality. You're, you're a, a helper, one who's very quick to jump in and help other people. We actually have quite a lot of those kind of folks here at Broadway. People who are quick and willing to help. And very naturally, you put your interests of others in front of your own. Sometimes to the detriment of your own health. You know who you are. Sometimes helping others... Sometimes helping others can be just as much about self-interest as not helping others. I want to confess a story to you. Uh, you know I'm, I'm good friends with, um, with my friend Kevin Chandler. Kevin's not here today, but I see, see Connie's here, his sister. 
Uh, Kevin and I uh, took a trip a few years ago um, with our organization, We Carry Kevin, and we, were, uh, we traveled by plane. And whenever you travel with Kevin, everything is a little bit of a spectacle because you're carrying him or he's, he's in the wheelchair. You kind of carry him down, you know, the runway to the airplane and get him on the, on the airplane, uh, airplane. And I remember a moment of getting him off the plane and, and walking down the tarmac. And I remember the moment where I stopped serving Kevin and I started being really impressed with myself and all the recognition and eyes that were on me. To be seen and known as a helper comes with its own sort of outward praise and recognition, doesn't it? Our helping, our outward displays of putting the interests of others above our own can be twisted and actually become about our own ego. So if that's you, and you know who you are. You're one of those people who very naturally put other people's interests above your own. We love you. And we are grateful for you. We love how much you want to help us. And I want to say to you that for some of you today, as you listen to this message, you're going to feel even more guilty. I'm just not doing it enough. I'm not putting the interests of others in front of my own. I just want to say that for some of you, what would help us the most is if you stop helping us. And to make sure that you are well. This is that whole put your oxygen mask on first, take care of yourself so that you can then help the person next to you. So Paul is not here telling us that caring for your own health or your own emotional needs or ignoring your own interests. He's not telling you to ignore your own interests. Ignoring your own interests is not the same thing as putting other people's interests before yours. It's not the same thing. Because here's the truth, if our church is going to be healthy and whole, everyone's interests and needs needs to be at the table. And if we are a community where all of our needs and all of our interests are being considered, then everyone's needs and interests will be addressed. And that's the calling of Christian community that we are praying for and seeking to live out however we may stumble and fall along the way. So this is the calling, this doing nothing out of selfish ambition to put other people's interests in front of our own. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And in this letter, Paul gives some example to the Philippians of people who are living this way, who are modeling this sort of maturity through humility. Earlier um, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 24, he, he describes the way that he's considering his own situation in prison. I just want you to to think about Paul's mindset here of considering others before himself. He says this, Philippians chapter 1, verse 22. Remember, he's in prison and he thinks he may be executed for his faith in Christ. Like the, the death penalty may be just around the corner. And this is what he says. He says, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced in this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul says, if the death penalty comes, bring it on. 
I'm ready to go and to be with Jesus, but I know that there's still work to do among you, and I'm glad to stay and to remain with you. And then at the end, uh, towards the end of chapter 2, Paul gives Timothy as an example of who, someone who put the interests of others above his own. Timothy, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest. Look, he's using uh, Timothy here as an example. Who takes a genuine interest in your welfare for everyone looks out for his own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. Timothy is an example. Philippian church, remember Timothy in his ministry among you. Follow his example of maturity and humility as one who looked not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And then he goes on to describe this man named Epaphroditus, who had this similar heart to serve Paul and to serve the Philippian church. And he describes him as an example of maturity through humility. So throughout this letter, Paul is reminding them that they have quite a few friends who can be examples to them of this humble disposition of putting the interests of others before themselves. Paul wants the the church in Philippi to enjoy one another as friends, to be fruitful in their work together, to be a healthy and growing community, a healthy network of friends. And he says, if we're going to do that, you need to pursue humility. Friends, we have experienced in the last couple of years how fragile community and friendships can be. We've experienced how fragile our relationships can be. We know what Paul knows here, how how fragile they are. And Paul writes to them and he says that if these strained relationships are going to survive, then you need to have the mind of Christ. The attitude of Christ, an attitude of humility. In the Philippian church, selfish ambition and vain conceit were creeping in, and they had the potential to divide the church. And so Paul says, You need to have the mind of Christ, a mind set on humility. Selfish ambition and vain conceit are always creeping at the door of our hearts. Let me give you just a very innocent example. Suppose you are in a group photo. The first time you see that photo, who are you looking at? Yourself. And if you look good in that picture, it's a good picture. Everyone else can have red eye, eyes closed, lettuce in their teeth, but you look good. It's a good picture. Okay, this is a very subtle example of selfish ambition and vain conceit. It's the attitude of not other people's interests above my own, but the attitude of the world revolves around me. I'm the most important person. Why don't you see that? Why don't you think like I think? Why don't you vote like I vote? Why don't you believe like I believe? Selfish ambition and vain conceit are always creeping around this heart of mine. 
and selfish ambition and vain conceits are always crouching at the door in the human heart and in human relationships. And so Paul writes to the Philippians and he says to them, he says to us that our relationships, our friendships will only hold together with the glue of humility. It is the bond that holds us together. Paul, again, he's writing to this church that's doing so well in so many areas, being so faithful in so many ways, but he also sees that there is a danger in the church. There are some relationships that are starting to have some frayed edges, some division among friends. People who used to work together are now at odds with one another. And so Paul writes this letter to help them to preserve those friendships through humility. And he says, remember, Timothy, remember Epaphroditus, remember my example of maturity through humility, and follow us as we follow Christ. Because, of course, Jesus Christ is the greatest example of humility. And that's the last part of this section that we're looking at today. Verses 6 through 11 often called the Christ hymn, these beautiful words and descriptions of the humility of Jesus. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11 11 is known as the Christ hymn. It was a song that was already being sung as the part of the life of the church. So within 25 or 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, one of the songs that the church was singing, that the Philippians would have known about, was a song that described the humility of Jesus. This was one of the most important characteristics in the mind of the early church, the humility of Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of of the heart and character of God. And so when we see that Jesus is humble, what we see also is that God is humble. You ever thought about God being humble? There is no one beneath him. There's no one unworthy of his attention. There is no one unworthy of his care and consideration. No one's life that is not worth his own life. No one who he's not willing to serve. That's what God is like. Verse 6. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or exploited or taken advantage of, but made himself nothing. I think up until this week, I always read this verse In this way, it's how I interpreted it. I read it this way that Jesus, even though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, and so he made himself a servant. I read it as if Jesus was somehow emptying himself of his divinity by becoming humble. But I think I've changed my mind this week, and I think that this should be read in this way. Paul says, being in very nature God, I think it should be read and understood in this way. Jesus, because he was in very nature God, humbled himself and became a servant. Do you see the difference? In the first one, humility is somehow counter to God's divinity. 
But in the second, humility is a part of God's divinity. It's an expression of the heart of God to us. Do you hear how scandalous that is, that God is that kind of way? That he's that kind of God, that he is the kind of God that would act in that way toward you and me. Humility is not the opposite of divinity. Humility is an expression of his divinity. Because Jesus, because Jesus was in very nature God, he did what God does in serving us, in loving us, becoming a servant for us. God is not strong in spite of being humble. God is strong because he is the most humble being in the universe. And when we are humble, we then are participating in the life and character of God. We are never more like Jesus than when we are humble. We are never more reflecting the character of God than when we are serving others. Humility, the willingness to serve, noticing and casting off selfish ambition and vain conceit, putting the interests of others before your own interests, is an essential part of this maturity that we're talking about, of knowing Christ and becoming like him in this way. And this is the calling of these verses. To call, the call to maturity offered to us in these verses is the calling to learn to become a servant like Jesus was a servant to us. Learning to be like a servant to the person that's sitting next to you. Learning to be a servant to the person that you don't like. Learning to be a servant to the person that you disagree with. Learning to be a per servant to the person who has harmed you. Learning to be a servant to your enemies as well as to your friends. In other words, learning to be a, ser a servant to all of the men and women that are in this room right now. There are people in this church that are your friends and some who you may feel are a little bit more of your enemies. There are people in this church that have harmed you, that you disagree with, some people that you just don't like all that much. But they are here. And you are here. And I believe that God has put you here to make you, to help you to know Jesus and to become more like Jesus. In the Christian community, as we get to know one another, as we rub shoulders with one another, as we live life together, as we spend time together, my sin is going to bump up against your sin, and it's going to hurt. There's going to be conflict. When we live in the church together, we're going to get to know one another, and we're going to see very clearly the sin of other people. And there are going to be times when we are going to hurt one another, when we're going to disappoint one another. When you live in any community, people are going to say things that hurt you and that wound you. The book of James says that the tongue is a, a fire that no one can fully control. We're going to say things that hurt and wound other people. Others are going to say things that hurt and wound you. But the difference of being a part of a church community rather than any other community that exists in the world is that our relationship is mediated by Jesus, grounded in and centered on the life and example of Jesus. And with this help, our attitude, with his help, our attitude can be the same attitude that he had, that like him, we can be humble and gentle and patient and bear with one another in love. 
through the examples that Jesus offered to us, and through the power of the Spirit living in us, we can be a community that responds to these strained relationships differently than the world around us. And it's through that that we become a demonstration of what the gospel is all about to begin with. And so what I would like for you to do is I'm going to take a couple of minutes of silence, and I would just like for you to bring some person to mind for you. Maybe it's somebody in in this church. Maybe it's somebody that you know, somebody at your workplace, somebody in your home. Bring some person to mind to you who, if that relationship is going to survive, is going to require your humility. Just encourage you to bring that person's face in that person's name to mind right now. In John chapter 13, the gospel tells us that Jesus showed his disciples the full extent of his love by washing his disciples' feet. It was the common practice in that day for a home to have a servant that was designated to wash people's feet that came into the room. But for those homes that were not wealthy enough to have a servant, what would happen is that if you came to somebody's house for a dinner party, the first person that arrived would wash everyone else's feet who came after. This is clearly where the practice of being fashionably late came from. In John 13, the disciples are sharing a meal together. Everyone has been seated And they finished the meal. They've been there for hours. And no one, no one had chosen to do that job yet. They had all conveniently forgotten. And so Jesus gets up and he does it. And what John says is so interesting to me. It says that Jesus, knowing that he came from God and that he was returning back to God, because of that, he got up and he washed his disciples' feet. Jesus knew his identity in the eyes of the Father And because of that, he was completely free to be a servant to anyone. Even Judas, who was in that moment in the business of betraying him. A humble person is the most free person in the world. No ego, nothing to protect, no pride to guard. Jesus knew that his identity and value and worth was in the hands of his father. And so because of that, he had the capacity to put the interests of others above his own, the capacity to be humble and to become a servant, even though he was teacher, master, and Lord. And so I'd like to ask you to bring that person's name and face to mind again. What do you need to do to wash that person's feet? If God has called you to wash someone's feet today, whatever that is, whatever that thing is that he's called you to do, it's probably going to be really, really hard. 
It will require you to swallow pride. It will require you to serve a person that has probably not served you. The action that you take will probably feel like some small death. But I want to remind you of this, that the last half of the Christ hymn tells us that because Jesus was humble and became a servant, therefore God exalted him. The scriptures say that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Your actions of humility are a reflection of your trust in God. Because Jesus knew that he had come from God and that he was returning to God, because of his trust in the Father, he got up and washed his disciples' feet. Our actions of humility towards others comes from that same place, a deep trust of who we are in God, a freedom that comes from our identity in him, and a faith that believes that when we go low and serve other people, that he will give grace and lift you up. Let's pray. God in heaven, I thank you for your upside-down ways. In a world of self-promotion and a world of competition, a world where there's just feels like there's never enough, that you have turned all of that upside down and have told us that what it really means to be great is to become like the least. What it really means to be strong is to be humble. What it really means to be glorified is to be hidden and that our work would not be known by anyone but you. And so, God, I pray that you would give us, by your spirit, we need your help. We cannot do this on our own. We pray that you would give us the attitude and the mind of Christ to be humble and to serve others. We ask for your help in this. In the name of Jesus, amen.